The idea of using pretend to trick our brains into doing things that are challenging isn't new, of course. These little fibs can serve as powerful tools for habit formation and, more importantly, proving to ourselves that we can do hard things. But can this little Jedi mind trick be deployed against something more insidious than a little kitchen clutter? Can it help dislodge something much more nasty than some crumbs that have fallen between the kitchen tiles? Can I trick myself out of my imposter syndrome? These are the questions that led to my current experiment, seeing whether I can fake out my imposter syndrome. And this is Are You Ready? with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. I know last week you all missed me so very dearly. (laughs) I was actually traveling. I was on the road for about 11 days straight. And instead of bringing you a half-hearted attempt at a podcast episode, I figured I'd wait until I got home to do it properly. This week, I actually wanted to talk about an issue that I know I've mentioned many times in the past, and it's imposter syndrome. I get a lot of questions and ask Joannes on how to defeat imposter syndrome, and here's the thing, if I knew the answer and solution to that problem, well, I would be a very different person. However, as you guys know, I've been very interested in the concept of habit formation, And I was wondering if there was a way to habitually fake out imposter syndrome. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I've been trying out this new thing for the past three weeks where I pretend that my kitchen isn't actually my kitchen. I know what you guys are all thinking. Why are we in Joanne's kitchen? I thought this was an episode about imposter syndrome. Just follow me here. Trust the process. So instead of thinking that my kitchen is my kitchen, I quote, make believe that it's actually my friend Deborah's kitchen. Deborah has a beautiful home in the Hamptons, and we've been guests there, lucky enough, almost every summer since I met her through my husband Anthony in 2015. In fact, I spent a week there right before my wedding in 2018, and I remember thinking that it was literally one of the most magical weeks of my life, the proverbial calm before the storm. Yes, our wedding was a good storm, but a storm nonetheless. Deborah is an incredibly gifted cook with a bounty of local farmers at her doorstep all summer long. In fact, you'll find a couple of inspirations from Deborah in my cookbook, namely the tinjang glazed onions. Because she spends so much time in the kitchen, she keeps it airy, open, and facing out the near floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the lush green landscape and the silvery harbor beyond. The kitchen is also equipped with the best that money can buy, a free-range oven, and the most expensive cookware, but lack some of the more modern-day gadgets that would disrupt the lovely hominess that Deborah imbues in every room she touches. 
There's no fancy espresso machine, but an old-fashioned coffee pot that I swear she's kept since the 1970s. It works better than any alarm clock with its soft popping and hissing at exactly the same time each morning. I will say she did relent and pick up an espresso machine when she realized that Anthony and I favor espresso drinks, but by that time, we'd kind of fallen in love with the old stained coffee pot and we really couldn't bear to move on from it. The immersion blender she purchased years ago remains practically unused in its original box, tucked away in the back pantry, taken out only when I visit and I'm in the mood for some corn soup or a fresh red sauce. A chandelier of pots and pans hangs from the ceiling, the same pots and pans Deborah's been cooking in for decades. Deborah is quite generous with her kitchen, far more so than I would be, introducing to me quiet alcoves and almost forgotten drawers like secrets between best friends. Not only does she stock her fridge and pantry with all sorts of vegan goodies before we arrive, she schools me on the best that the local farmers have to offer, what's in season and what to avoid, where I might be able to find gochukaru in the middle of Long Island, still looking. There's always something special about cooking in Deborah's kitchen, an ease I can't seem to replicate even at home. In part, it's the functionality that Deborah designed into her kitchen. The pots and pans are easily within reach, the prep bowls nested together right where they should be, the garlic and onions housed tidily together in a dim nook right next to the stovetop and right by the extra virgin olive oil. But there's something else, something I can't really put my finger on, despite having cooked in Deborah's kitchen now dozens of times. A serenity that attends the whole self-perpetuating nature of it all. The farmers growing and harvesting the food, picking through the season's largest of eggplants, zucchini, tomatoes, and sweet corn, making something simple, nutritious, and delicious from it all, spooning it onto Deborah's plates while she hums underneath her breath and her husband H guffaws over the same story he's been regaling me with for nearly a decade, one that I somehow never tire of hearing, though. And the clink and scrape of forks and knives and wine glasses as the sun sets with a fiery outrage at odds with the rather mundane sounds of a homemade dinner among close friends. As you might imagine, when I make so much as a peanut butter sandwich in Deborah's kitchen, I take pains to leave the kitchen as pristine as when I entered. No dirty dishes in the sink, no used cookware left out on the kitchen island, no crumbs scattered across the counters, because the idea that Deborah would feel even a thumbprint of imposition from my cooking would cause complete and utter mortification. And it is this aspect of being in her kitchen that I've experimented with bringing into my own kitchen. Anthony has often complained that our home, particularly the kitchen, is too cluttered and messy, and I don't disagree with him. But as I think he finally understands, cooking and recipe development is my job. As a result, for every one type of flour a regular at-home cook has, I will need four. In addition to the four-use cutlery and plates, I will have an entire second set that's just for props and photographs. Where the average person goes through a small bottle of soy sauce in a quarter, I will go through two jumbo jugs in less than a month. As a result, the pantry is overflowing, literally, with enough ingredients to fill a commercial kitchen. 
but I don't have a commercial kitchen. In fact, I have an average-sized kitchen with not a lot of counter space, a narrow refrigerator, and a cupboard beneath the staircase, just like in the Harry Potter books, we repurposed into a very tight and dark pantry. But Anthony's grievances weren't limited to the amount of stuff we had. Every once in a while, usually in the middle of a fight that absolutely has nothing to do with the state of our house, he would accuse me of not picking up after myself. Despite my legitimate objection to the inapposite timing of such criticism, I begrudgingly noted that the coffee mug I drank out of each morning often lingered more than necessary on the kitchen table, that half-consumed cans of sparkling water littered the ever-diminishing counter space, that dishes often piled up in the sink while the dishwasher remained in a constant state of, wait, are these washed or unwashed? Once we moved into our new home in SoCal, we hired an organizer to kickstart a more orderly kitchen life, but that soon gave way to the exigencies of cookbook number two. Weekly photo shoots were all-day affairs, often entailing up to 10 recipes a day. For months, it was an all-hands-on-deck affair, and Anthony's largest contribution was saying mum about the chaos that soon enveloped nearly the entire downstairs area of our home. But as you may recall... I invited my mother, aunt, and cousin to help me with a final photo shoot for cookbook number two, and Asian moms just can't help but be Asian moms. After an entire day's worth of cooking and composing and photographing, the kitchen looked cleaner than I could remember it by the time my camera finally came to rest. I decided then and there that I was going to do my darndest to keep my kitchen neater, not sparkling clean, but a sight tidier than what had become normalized through the cookbook shoot process. But as we discussed a few weeks ago, change, even small change, requires more than just a gung-ho determination. Sustainable habit formation requires a little strategy, a bit of cleverness to make otherwise slippery behavior patterns sufficiently sticky. While fitting my camera batteries into their assigned chargers immediately after a YouTube shoot, a habit I've kept now for about nine months, I thought about that time at the law firm when a member of the management committee warned me that my time entries had become noticeably tardy. Noticeably, as in the most powerful people at my firm had noticed and had put me on some sort of list of recalcitrants. I was up for partner that year and was told quite explicitly that my failure to enter my time was staining an otherwise impressive record. Completely humiliated, I told Michael, okay, from now on, I'm going to do my time entries every day and you will never see me on the bad list again. After hanging up the phone, I took a big black marker and wrote the following on a yellow post-it. Never say for tomorrow what you can do today. I stuck it on the corkboard next to my phone and reinforced it with a blue thumbtack for good measure. From that day forward, with very few exceptions, like when I was on trial or traveling, I entered and closed my time every single morning. In fact, I couldn't start my workday without doing my time entries. And what used to take several hours a month to do now took only five to seven minutes a day. True to my word, I never 
ever appeared on that bad list again. And I have to say that habit formation, it's maybe become a little problematic because now, even when I start my day as the Korean vegan, whether it's editing YouTube videos, writing my podcast episode or recording one like I'm doing right now, in my head, I'm still wondering, oh, did I do my time from the day before? As I retrieve the SD cards from my cameras after that YouTube shoot, another habit I've sustained for several months, I tried to think of the equivalent of the carpe diem post-it note I kept in my office. And just like that, I had it. Pretend your kitchen is Deborah's kitchen. I could literally feel the conceit sliding into place with the same soft click as the camera batteries I'd just started recharging. From that point on, every time I saw a lone, used cup sitting on the corner of the island, a knife with dabs of peanut butter loitering in our sink, a random kitchen prop left stranded between the kitchen and my studio, I would ask myself, would you leave that there if this were Deborah's kitchen? And before the emphatic no finished echoing its way through my body, the cup, knife, and kitchen prop would be swept up and placed in the dishwasher or tucked neatly back into place in my studio. It's been three weeks since I started that little experiment, and I can definitely feel the rough edges of a habit forming inside my brain, though picking up after things isn't always by rote, at least not yet. The other night, after a full day of editing videos, responding to emails, and cooking my dog's food, I wanted nothing more than to curl up into bed and go to sleep while staring at the growing mountain of dirty dishes in the sink. What's worse was that the dishwasher had just been run, but not yet emptied. Perhaps I could stare the dirty dishes away? And then I thought, you've had a long day. It won't hurt anyone for you to leave a few dirty dishes in the sink. But this, it wasn't true. In the end, it would hurt my habit formation. And because the habit formation was my goal and mine alone, it would hurt me. So I repeated the fundamental question. Would I leave these dishes in the sink at Deborah's house? No. No, of course I wouldn't. So I rolled up my sleeves and I got to work. It's too early to tell, but so far, this little experiment is shaping up to be a big success. We've gotten several square inches of kitchen back, and my husband appreciates that I'm at least trying. The idea of using pretend to trick our brains into doing things that are challenging isn't new, of course. One trick I often use during my long runs or marathons is the old just run one more mile and I'll let you walk ruse or the just work out for five minutes and then I'll let you quit if you hate it that much. Nine out of 10 times, I end up running the whole thing, working out the full hour. Despite knowing that these are lies, I know the kitchen isn't actually Deborah's kitchen. These little fibs can serve as powerful tools for habit formation and more importantly, proving to ourselves that we can do hard things. And yes, washing dishes at 9.30 p.m., it's hard. But can this little Jedi mind trick be deployed against something more insidious than a little kitchen clutter? Can it help dislodge something much more nasty than some crumbs that have fallen between the kitchen tiles? Can I trick myself out of my imposter syndrome? 
For those who are unfamiliar with the affliction known as imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome is a behavioral health phenomenon described as self-doubt of intellect, skills, or accomplishments among high-achieving individuals. These individuals cannot internalize their success and subsequently experience pervasive feelings of self-doubt, anxiety, depression, and or apprehension of being exposed as a fraud in their work, despite verifiable and objective evidence of their successfulness. I remember when I first discovered this phrase, imposter syndrome, I felt shocked how it mapped on all fours against the shame I'd harbored pretty much my whole life, how well it explained why my C-plus in advanced geometry in high school always prevented me from believing I was as smart as my teachers said I was, how it perfectly encapsulated the dread I walked into the office with every single morning as if at any moment the penny would drop and everyone would finally realize I had no business being a lawyer, much less a partner at a law firm. How it continues to dog me even now as a 44-year-old entrepreneur and successful author, as if certain doom lurks behind every corner of our home, ready to restore my rightful place as the girl who wept over the report card with the ugly C-plus in geometry. Recently, I was invited to the Streamy Awards, and believe it or not, I was there to actually receive a Streamy Award. My good friend Cassie nominated me to receive a creator honor Streamy. Needless to say, I was both flabbergasted and incredibly grateful to be Cassie's honoree, not the least of which was because I am such an admirer of Cassie's extraordinary work and story. That said, I showed up to the awards very much feeling like I do not belong here. I assumed that most of the people who received a coveted invitation to the award ceremony had far more subscribers, followers, and clout than I did. But I did my very best to mask my imposter syndrome, view my attendance as an excellent opportunity for growth, and otherwise enjoy the evening with Cassie and her husband, Sam. The following day, I posted a video about the event on my Instagram. I showed the video to some friends a few days later over dinner, describing both my elation and apprehension at being honored with a streamy. And they asked, well, why? Why would you be apprehensive about going to this incredible event? And I told them, because I didn't feel like I belong there. Expressing incredulity that I, I might struggle with imposter syndrome, they scanned through a handful of the photos from the event, and one of them, Nabia, observed, Oh my God, Joanne, I can see your imposter syndrome. I can see your insecurity. Look at the way you're standing. And sure enough, I looked at the photo and I was standing hunched over as if somebody were coming at me about to punch me in the face. Now, it's one thing when you know you have imposter syndrome. It's an entirely different thing when someone else can see it. All this time, I'd thought I'd done a pretty good job of masking my crippling lack of confidence, but apparently I was wrong. I felt my face heat up and the wheels of my brain already beginning to turn as I recalibrated the facade I'd need to don for future public appearances. It was at this point that Nabia said something I simply haven't been able to get out of my mind. 
You need to create a Joanne 2.0, a Joanne who pretends that she knows she deserves to be there as much as everyone else. I imagine putting on this guise of a totally new Joanne, Joanne 2.0, one who is confident, made people laugh, strode into rooms with her shoulders back and her gaze straight, only it wouldn't really be a new me so much as a fake me, like a character in a sitcom. Believe it or not, the idea appealed to me. I liked theater in junior high and high school. I was the star of the school musical my junior year. I played the part of a cockney waif and me and my gal. I was the gal. Surely, if I could convincingly play the role of a lower-class British vagrant, I could pretend to be this Joanne 2.0, someone who believed she deserved to be there. Over the past several days, I've had a chance to practice playing the part of Joanne 2.0. About two weeks ago, I flew to New York City to participate in my first ever fashion event, a watch party hosted by Genesis and Vogue, where I got to hobnob with models and bona fide New York fashionistas as we celebrated the official opening of London Fashion Week. I was thrown into a room full of like extremely beautiful people wearing extremely beautiful and expensive clothes surrounded by flashing cameras and the clink of champagne flutes. I knew two people, acquaintances I'd met when I began my partnership with Genesis, a Korean car company. Despite the overwhelming urge to hover around the small table of finger foods like I was extremely preoccupied by deciding what to eat, none of it was vegan, or take multiple unnecessary bathroom breaks, if you're an introvert, you know what I was doing, I asked myself, what would Joanne 2.0 do? Well, it turns out that the answer to this question was a lot more complicated than picking up the empty coffee mug. Confidence doesn't look the same for everyone. My definition of confidence was rapidly evolving as I continued to examine how to play this new sitcom role. In the beginning, I thought it meant diving into conversations I wasn't necessarily invited to, making jokes that had everyone laughing, taking selfies with my new, quote, friends, and otherwise making myself the center of attention. But as I watched other people act this way, I realized that confidence could sometimes be, well, obnoxious. <laughs> confidence could easily be mistaken for or even unmasked as arrogance or narcissism. Call it confidence or something else. I just didn't want to be that kind of person. And it dawned on me, feeling worthy of standing inside a given space had little to do with always being at the center of it. I thus shifted my focus from being the life of the party, ceding that role to others who seemed far more inclined in that direction, and instead sought out individuals I actually wanted to talk to. Yes, I tend to feel lost and insecure in large groups and infernal networking events, but one-on-one? -on -one? 17 years of depositions have made me a rather skilled and agile conversationalist. Moreover, I could focus the soft light of my attention on whomever I was talking to instead of needing to be under that spotlight myself. I had a riotous chat with a fellow Star Wars sci-fi nerd, an engrossing dissection of all the running paths of New York City with a fellow long-distance runner, 
and a fascinating discussion regarding the state of misogyny with a female executive of one of the largest companies in South Korea. I discovered that when you're enjoying yourself, you no longer care whether you belong. And when you no longer care, well, that's what confidence really looks like. I did want to add one more small thought on this idea of I deserve to be here, pretending that I know that I deserve to be here. It's funny, this habit of continuing to question what would Joanne 2.0 do? It has been helpful in other smaller contexts. I was at the airport on my way home from, geez, where the heck was I? I've been to so many different cities in the past 10 days. I was coming home from Chicago to LAX, and I was standing in line to get on the plane when a woman just cuts right in front of me without even a buy your leave or an excuse me. And we were boarding. It wasn't like we were just standing around to board. We were actually boarding and she decides to cut right in front of me. I don't know about you, but my personality is always like, fine, just go ahead. I'm not going to make a fuss about it. But then I said, well, what would Joanne 2.0 do? And it didn't have to be, you know, combative or confrontational. I simply cut right back. (laughs) I just swooped again, right in front of her. And I said to myself, hey, I deserve this place in line. I've been standing here for the past 15 minutes. You just decided to cut right in front of me and I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to cut right back. And I got into my seat. And these are small little changes in not just my behavior, but my perspective that I actually very much appreciate. This whole idea of fake it till you make it, there is a little bit of faking it, right? I'm not actually in Deborah's kitchen. And this Joanne 2.0, this isn't actually the way that I would have acted. There isn't actually a 2.0, right? I'm not like a freaking robot. But these sort of fibs, if you will, or mental clevernesses or little tricks that we can play with ourselves, I still believe they are incredibly powerful tools, as I said for habit formation. I don't know if any of you also suffer from a small or perhaps large degree of imposter syndrome, but I encourage you to find your little post-it note to discover what your 2.0 version might do, whether they might stand in the place and say to themselves, I deserve to be here just as much as everyone else. And with that, we're on to parting thoughts. Shortly after my event in New York City, I flew home to Chicago to spend some time with my mom and dad. The morning after I unzipped my suitcase in my brother's old room, my room was turned into my mother's office, I woke up while it was still pitch black outside to head out to Waterfall Glen, a nearby park. Two loops, according to my training calendar, which translated roughly into 19 miles. And by 19 miles, I mean I would be running 19 miles. (laughs) I knew my running team would be out there, but because all of them were much faster than I am, I started an hour before everyone else. 
Near mile eight, I finally started to see my teammates loping towards me, nodding or sometimes waving as we passed. As I turned the bend of mile nine, another large cluster of teammates came into view. A chorus of, Joanne, good job, Joanne, yeah, Joanne, flew towards me as I fist-pumped my way past them. Only halfway done with my run, my feet bounced on the rough gravel as I turned around to begin my second loop. As I looked up at the latticework of trees splayed out against the gray sky, I mused, Joanne 2.0 might be more fun and confident, but man, it sure is nice to be around people. I can just be Joanne. Thanks everyone for joining me for another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, hit that subscribe button, leave a comment and a rating below. Let me know what you want to hear about next. And if you really enjoyed this episode, it would mean so much to me if you shared it with your friends, your family, your loved ones, your colleagues, or anyone else you think might benefit from a discussion on faking out imposter syndrome. Until next week, I hope you have a lovely and wonderful day.